Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jennifer Sturiali, Clemenko Fellow and Lecturer on Law at Harvard Law School. We will discuss her articles, A Balanced Consideration of the Federal Circuit's Choice of Law Rule, which will be published in the Utah Law Review, and The Unseen Force in Civil Litigation, the Chief Justice's appointment of the Judicial Panel on Multidistrict Litigation. So welcome to the show, Jennifer. Hi, Brian. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. I, I really liked both of these papers, um, especially the first one, which is an interesting mashup of civil procedure and intellectual property, which are like, you know, two great tastes that I didn't realize uh, previously went great together. Right, right. Peanut butter and chocolate. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Which one's peanut butter? Which one's chocolate? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, mm. But um, but but I wonder... Um, for listeners who may not be as familiar with how intellectual property and specifically how patent litigation works, if you could talk a little bit about what the federal circuit is, why it was created, and sort of what relationship it has to the other federal uh, circuit courts. So the federal circuit was created in 1982, and um, it's a it's a federal court of appeals. Uh, with the same relative authority as the other court of appeals. So for example, the first circuit, the second circuit, the third circuit, um, we refer to those as the regional circuits. And so it has the same uh, power and authority as those courts do, um, but it has different jurisdiction. And it was the court was created primarily to create uniformity in patent law. And so Unlike the regional courts of appeals, whose jurisdiction is geographically determined, the federal circuit's jurisdiction <clears throat> is determined by the subject matter of the claims. Um, and so as a result, the federal circuit can hear appeals from all 94 district courts um, if the if it pertains to the subject matter. So with respect to intellectual property and specifically patent law, the federal circuit hears appeals from final decisions um, if the, cl uh, the claims or compulsory counterclaims arise under the patent laws. So for example, if a case has an antitrust case claim and a patent claim, and it was filed in the Southern District of New York, the entire case gets appealed to the federal circuit, even though the case originated in the Southern District of New York. The federal circuit also hears claims arising under what's called the Little Tucker Act, which um, waives United States sovereign immunity and creates a cause of action against the government for certain kinds of claims. It also hears appeals from the International Trade Commission, the U.S. Court of International Trade, um, and some administrative appeals from the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, and some other things. But, <clears throat> but it's it's just worth noting that the court has um, jurisdiction over entire cases, not just issues, specifically not just patent issues. So, again, if there's this case that arises in the Southern District of New York that is copyright and patent the court has jurisdiction over the entire case, not just the patent issues. So one thing I, I learned from your paper, which I honestly didn't previously realize, even though I probably should have, was that the federal circuit hears more than just 
patent claims. So, I mean, why is that? Why did Congress decide to put this kind of range of different subject matter jurisdiction within the purview of the federal court, uh, federal, uh, the federal circuit, rather than just limit it to to patent claims, which is what I understood the purpose of the court to be. As I mentioned, the the court has jurisdiction over these other types of claims, and in as well as the entire case, not just the patent issues. And so the reason for that was to prevent the federal circuit from becoming a specialized court as such. So the idea is that if you have if the court had jurisdiction over more than just patent claims, it would continue to get the learning and the cross-pollination of ideas from hearing other types of cases. Mm. Well, so your paper is about choice of law rules and specifically the choice of law rules applied by the federal circuit. But uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what a choice of law rule is and why choice of law poses a unique problem for the federal circuit. Yeah. So a choice of law analysis arises um, typically because in some instances, a set of facts uh, giving rise to a lawsuit may justify application of the law of more than one sovereign. And so the court will undertake a choice of law analysis to consider which sovereign's law to apply. So for example, let's say you live in Alabama and you live very close to the Georgia and Florida border, and your employer is actually in Georgia, but you frequently drive into Florida for work. And um, and, and one day you're driving in Florida and you're in a car accident. So you decide to bring a lawsuit in Georgia, which has more favorable law with respect to, let's say, the insurance coverage. Um, and so Georgia, the, the court in Georgia, the state court, will do a choice of law analysis under its own choice of law rules to consider whether to apply, let's say, Georgia law or Alabama law or Florida law. Uh, and the, the same sort of analysis applies when the United States, uh, a federal district court, is presiding over a case and deciding whether to apply United States law versus foreign law, like Germany law, uh, German law. So the federal circuit has concluded it has a similar but not exactly the same sort of choice. So because the court hears appeals from cases originating in all of the regional courts of appeals, and because it hears not only patent issues but entire cases, the the federal circuits concluded uh, and concluded very early on in its existence that there was a question as to whether it should apply its own law or the law of the regional circuit court from which the case originated um, with respect to these legal issues before it. So, for example, if we return to the example I mentioned earlier, if a case is filed in the Southern District of New York and it includes a copyright claim and a patent claim, the federal circuit believes there's a question as to whether to apply federal circuit law or second circuit law to the legal issues. This is um, unusual because the supposed choice is between the law of two courts of appeals. But in the, this example, the underlying sovereign is still the United States. So this is unlike the choice I mentioned earlier, where the choice is between Georgia, Florida, and Alabama law, three different sovereigns. And so the way the federal circuit has resolved the choice and um, 
what makes it unique is that it's resolving this federal choice of law question. So the way it's resolved it is to apply the law of the regional circuit from which a case originated to the non-patent issues, in, including procedural issues. And it only applies federal circuit law to the patent issues. So in the example I mentioned, where we have a case originating from the Southern District of New York that includes a patent claim and copyright claim, the federal circuit will apply second circuit law to the copyright issues and second circuit law to the procedural issues and federal circuit law to the patent issues. Well, this procedural substantive distinction that the federal circuit is applying in its choice of law rule is highly reminiscent of the Erie analysis applied by federal courts to the decision of whether to uh, you know a particular rule is procedure procedural or substantive with respect to the federal law state law distinction i mean how does this analysis this kind of similar analysis work in relation to the federal circuit and are the same kinds of rationales and justifications still salient given that we don't have this kind of bifurcated sovereignty that we would have in the context of an eerie analysis so yes, you're correct that it sounds a lot like the Erie Doctrine, and um, and it raises some of the same problems. You ask, you know, how does it work? Well, it like in the Erie Doctrine, it requires the court, the federal court, to distinguish between substantive issues on the one hand and procedural issues on the other, and um, so both of them rely in this substance procedure dichotomy, um, but. My argument is that dichotomy is a false one, and it's the falsity of that dichotomy um, that is the reason why the Supreme Court runs into problems when applying the Airy Doctrine, and it's the reason why the Federal Circuit um, runs into problems when it's trying to apply its choice of law rule. But what was the rationale for the Federal Circuit to adopt this particular rule? In other words, what was it trying to accomplish with this choice of law rule? And to what extent, if at all, is it effective at accomplishing the goal it set out for itself? So the Federal Circuit in adopting this rule was mindful of the fact that cases that originated in a particular court would um, the the district court there would be most familiar with the law of the regional circuit court in which it sat. So for example, if the Southern District of New York is presiding over a case that has patent claims and copyright claims, the Southern District of New York is most familiar with second circuit law. And so the Federal Circuit in adopting its rule was trying to prevent having the district courts having to look over both shoulders, so to speak, and have to be both have allegiance to the regional circuit court, like the Second Circuit and the Federal Circuit for the same sort of issue. So rather than have the Second Circuit become familiar with copyright law in the Second Circuit and copyright law in the Federal Circuit, the court's rule is aimed at having the Southern District of New York only have to become familiar with the Second Circuit's copyright law. And the same issue goes, uh, sorry, the same uh, rationale applies for procedural issues. So that the Second Circuit, I'm sorry, the Southern District of New York only has to apply 
Second Circuit procedural law, it doesn't have to also learn Federal Circuit procedural law. I'm sorry, and you, you also asked to what extent has the court been effective? And so, you know, it kind of depends on what we mean by being effective here, but has the court prevented the district courts from having to learn federal circuit law? Yes, in some instances. Um, For example, there is no federal circuit copyright law as such. But when it comes to the patent issues, it gets a little bit more complicated um, because the court has gone back and later realized that some of its some of the issues that are seemingly simply procedural in fact do pertain to patent law and as a result the court the federal circuit now has its own case law and jurisprudence about those procedural issues so the the district courts now are still in facing uh, the reality of having to apply their own circuits procedural law and then in some instances some instances apply federal circuit procedural law if it actually pertains to patent law but they don't the district court doesn't necessarily know that until after the federal circuit has weighed in on an issue and said ah you know this procedural issue actually pertains to patent law and so this is the kind of decision that we're going to apply and develop our own law i would even say that some might even say the court has not been very effective with respect to the the first problem I discussed about the substantive law. So we have the federal circuit. It's not arguably developing its own copyright law, but we have the recent decision of um, Oracle v. Google in which some people believe that the federal circuit misapplied the Ninth Circuit's law with respect to copyright law. And so one could even argue we now have federal circuit interpretation of Ninth Circuit law, which is different than Ninth Circuit interpretation of Ninth Circuit law. Well, so broadly speaking, my understanding of the dynamic you're talking about here is there was this desire to have kind of consistency within the district courts as to what law to apply. In other words, the idea was that this choice of law rule would mean that district courts wouldn't have to apply different rules just because a particular case happened to have a patent claim of some kind in the case, they would apply more or less the same rules across the board. But it seems like from your article, the problem, or one of the problems maybe, is that the rule creates discontinuity within the federal circuit kind of inevitably, because now the federal circuit has to contemplate which circuit a case is coming from in order to determine which law to apply, and that that itself can create problems. Is that right? Yes. So that's exactly right. So the the problem is that we have the federal circuit applying the law of the regional circuit courts, but that law is not necessarily consistent, right? That there may be differences in the procedural law and the application of procedural law from the regional circuit courts. And so by applying this procedural law, we actually get silos of law within the federal circuit. We get, for example, Fifth Circuit precedent and Sixth Circuit precedent. Um, And and a related problem, the more important problem there, though, is that just the same way that this substance 
procedure dichotomy is a false one in the in the context of Erie. As I as I mentioned, it's a false one in the context of the federal circuit and its you know application of the choice of law rule. And so what we have is that issues that are arguably procedural actually can um, require a determination about or touch upon substantive law issues. And so by developing and applying the procedural law in different ways from because the circuit courts arguably have different procedural law, what we have is the court developing disparate substantive patent law within the federal circuit. So if there's a difference in the procedural law and it touches upon substantive law, we now have a silo of Fifth Circuit, for example, patent law with respect to that procedural issue and a silo of Sixth Circuit uh, patent law with respect to that procedural issue. Maybe you could give an example specific to the Federal Circuit and patent law of why this procedure substance distinction is illusory and not an effective way of determining which law to apply. So, yeah, I can uh, let me give you an example. So in one case, there was a question as to whether to permit a defendant to transfer a case out of the Sixth Circuit and to the Ninth Circuit. And in that case, the case was called Barnes and Noble or Henry Barnes and Noble. And in that case, the Federal Federal Circuit um, arguably applied Sixth Circuit law and concluded that a transfer was not warranted. Um, But there was a dissent, and the dissent's argument is, hey, we've decided similar cases like this before, and in those cases, we did allow the transfer. We should treat like cases alike. But the majority's response was, nope, those earlier cases, those cases arose in the Fifth Circuit, not the Sixth Circuit. So the different treatment is justified. So I was curious, and I went back and actually looked at the the precedent the court relied on in those earlier cases that arose from the Fifth Circuit. And it turns out that there was nothing in the Fifth Circuit precedent that actually justified this different treatment. So we already have this sort of different treatment of parties, depending on what circuit they arise in. But there's this issue of uniformity of patent law. And and there's another concern, which is the transparency transparency of what the court's doing. So you're left wondering, well, why did the court treat these different parties differently? And it's certainly not clear from the opinion. And so the best we can do is hypothesize as to why the federal circuit is treating some defendants um, from the Fifth Circuit uh, differently than defendants from the Sixth Circuit who are seeking to transfer their case. So my hypothesis is that the court was trying to correct for a problem, and and specifically uh, a systemic problem of patent trolls favoring, and so these are patent plaintiffs, right, who favor the Fifth Circuit because of its more favorable local rules and practices. And so the court's way of correcting for this systemic problem is to be more permissive with respect to transfers out of the Fifth Circuit, which is why the court permitted the transfers in the earlier cases and did not permit them in this case of Barnes and Noble, where the defendant was, uh, the suit was brought in the Sixth Circuit. But if that's the reason, we would want the court to be more trans- transparent about that. And so that's another problem with the court's choice of law rule. Well, so, I mean, what do you see as potential alternatives? I mean, if the 
if the choice of law rule adopted by the federal circuit is suboptimal in terms of policy outcomes and also kind of founded on this procedure substance distinction that isn't a real distinction in the first place, like what can or should it do differently? And are there better ways of achieving the policy goals of consistency, predictability, and as I understand it, preventing forum shopping as well? Yeah. So I think there are two potential alternative rules one could consider, but I'm not convinced that either completely resolves the problems. So the first alternative is for the federal circuit to apply the law of the court, the regional circuit court from which a case came to all issues. So for example, if a case arose in the second circuit, you would apply second circuit law to all issues. That rule, I think, ultimately is in in practice going to be very similar to the rule we have now. There isn't there there really isn't any Second Circuit patent law, right? So what will happen is the cases will get appealed to the Federal Circuit. It will apply Second Circuit law to the non-patent issues, including the procedural issues. But then there will be a question of well, what law do we apply to the patent issues? And there was a time when compulsory counterclaims were not uh, that that raised issues of patent law were not appealed to the federal circuit. So there is some regional circuit patent law, but um, but there haven't hasn't been for some years now, and there it's the courts are certainly not continuing to develop patent law, and so the court would end up being in a position it very much is now, which is having to develop its own patent law. The other issue there is that it would continue to um, encourage forum shopping as between the regional circuit courts. So parties may choose to file in the second versus the seventh or the ninth, for example, because they think the second circuit has more favorable law. That is maybe not quite as problematic because we already have that sort of type of form shopping. Um, but I think this issue of the rule basically being, uh, as a practical matter, being very similar to the rule we have now is one that weighs heavily against adopting that rule. The second possible rule is one in which the federal circuit applied and developed its own law to all issues the way that most uh the, the other regional circuit courts do. Um, so there's, and that, that has a lot of logical appeal because that's what other courts do. What I would say is there's, there's two potential problems with that rule. The first one is that that rule could encourage form shopping, but form shopping of a different type. Um, we would say for, we could call it form shopping as between the federal circuit and the regional circuits. So all a party would have to do if they thought, for example, the federal circuit had more favorable law than, let's say, the second circuit, is tack on a patent claim. That way they would be sure to know that they would get federal circuit law to apply to all of the issues, including their non-patent issues and their procedural issues. And Congress was very clear in the legislative history of the enabling statute that created the federal circuit, that they were trying to discourage that type of forum shopping. 
the other issue is that in order for that rule to work, the, the, the appeal of that rule is that it would be clear to a district court in the first instance that the case was going to be appealed to the federal circuit, and therefore the court should apply federal circuit law to all issues, just in the same way that the court would otherwise apply regional circuit law to all issues. The problem is that um, the rule can still be difficult for a district court to administer because it may not be clear at the outset of a case that the case is going to be appealable to the federal circuit. So for example, a defendant could um, assert a compulsory counterclaim after the case has already been uh, brought, and that compulsory counterclaim raises issues of patent law, and then the case becomes one that is appealable to the federal circuit. So the question you ask then is, is there a better way of achieving, achieving the court's policy goals? And and I think that really at issue here is there's going to be a trade-off um, regardless of various policy goals, both of preventing forum shopping, creating uniformity, preventing the court from, be, from becoming a specialized court. <clears throat> and so what's really required here, I think, is for the federal circuit to make a normative determination about what um, policy objectives are valued more and then choose the rule consistent with those. And, and so there's no one clear outcome because there are competing policy objectives. I also propose another, you know, solution, um, may, which may only end up being a temporary solution, but, um, and essentially, which is like a structural solution. So one way of correcting this problem is to have trial courts that are quasi-specialized in that they only hear or at least hear a greater percentage of patent cases. And there is currently a program uh, called the Patent Pilot Program, and it allows, it identifies certain district courts as participants in the program. And then within that district court, judges can either opt in or opt out. And by that, I mean judges who, let's say, get a case randomly assigned to them that includes an issue of patent law. Perhaps they think the issue is too complicated. Perhaps they're just not interested in it at all. Um, they can opt out to hear that case. It doesn't mean they opt out of all patent cases, but they opt out of hearing that particular one. And so then that case goes back in to the hopper, so to speak, and gets randomly assigned to judges who have opted in to hear more patent cases. And so then those judges who have opted in end up hearing a, a greater portion of patent cases. And so because they've chosen to opt in, one might one assumption might be that they have a greater interest in the development and application of patent law. And so a proposal I suggest is that um, – or. Uh, is that the federal circuit could apply and develop its own law, but only to cases arising from district courts that are participating in the patent pilot program. So the litigants wouldn't know that the case was necessarily 
going, I'm sorry, only from the judges who have opted in, not just the district courts. So the litigants wouldn't necessarily know that the case was going to go to one of these judges and was therefore going to be appealed to the federal circuit and have the federal circuit apply its own law to all issues, not just to the patent issues. Um, And it would allow those judges who had an interest in developing and applying patent law to apply the federal circuit's law and attempt to do so in a uniform manner while also applying their regional circuit's law otherwise. And we could use it as an experiment to see how it worked. Um, But that program is scheduled to end in, I believe, 2021. And so it's only a little bit of time left to take advantage of that experiment, uh, that opportunity to experiment. But Short of that, the the reality is that the federal circuit's unique jurisdiction creates a conundrum that is not you ca- you cannot resolve. It's like whack the mole. You cannot resolve one of the conundrums without creating another conundrum somewhere else or in some other dimension. I gotta say, like I mean, reading your paper, I couldn't help but wonder whether one of the factors in the conundrum that you point out is the Supreme Court's like kind of historically sort of novel increasing unwillingness to engage in extensive error correction among the lower courts. Because it seems like in theory, we would want to converge upon the same procedural and substantive rules. And it seems a little weird to say that different circuit courts have different law as it were, given that they're all supposed to be interpreting and applying the same federal law for sure, right? I mean, state law is a whole other matter, but when they're interpreting the federal as a civil procedure or, as you said earlier, interpreting the Copyright Act, for example, I mean, that's federal law. Shouldn't they be (laughs) applying the same law? And if they aren't, isn't that a problem that's kind of on the Supreme Court to fix? So yeah, the the Supreme Court, um, it would be great to think that the Supreme Court would resolve these sorts of differences in uh, procedural law among the regional circuit courts. But the the problem is that the court just doesn't hear that many um, cases any longer. It it has limited its docket considerably over the last you know some years. So. You know, it would be great to think of the court resolving the differences in a motion for um, summary judgment, like any differences there are in the regional circuit courts. But the court, it's hard to imagine them doing that with how limited its docket is now. Well, so I thought we could transition and briefly talk about your new paper, looking at the role of the chief justice in appointments and specifically in relation to multi-district litigation. So, I mean, I'll admit that I always saw this chief justice as largely equivalent to the other justices with, with some kind of minor and, you know, very limited additional powers associated with the role, especially with like impeachment, which I guess is more, more, more salient recently right. than it has been in, in 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 the past but you <laughs> right. point out that there's actually some some obligations or sort of in institutional roles of the chief justice that are kind of lesser known but actually potentially kind of important so i i, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what those are and why you think they matter sure so 
the chief justice, um, as you as you probably know, the chief justice is not really mentioned in the Constitution except for in the context of presiding over um, impeachment. But um, Congress has given the chief justice a number of other administrative powers, such as, for example, presiding over the meetings of the Judicial Conference of the United States. But the chief also has some appointment powers. He or she can, for example, appoint judges to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, um, also known as the FISA Court, and and then even the court to which those cases are appealed, the FISA Review Court. And then the subject of my paper is uh, the Judicial Panel on Multidistrict on Multidistrict Litigation, and the Chief Justice also appoints the jurists to that panel as well. So maybe talk a little bit about what that is. I mean, I'm guessing some listeners may not be familiar with the panel on multi-district litigation. Yeah. So the Judicial Panel on Multi-District Litigation, also called the JPML, is a seven-member body. Um, It's um, composed of district court or court of appeal judges and the only constraint on the composition of that panel is that no two members can be from the same circuit. And what that panel does is uh, it can, on its own volition or in response to a motion by a party, it can transfer cases to one court, one district court, for consolidated pretrial proceedings. And what does that mean in practice? Yeah. So a party or like I said, the party or the panel can um, consider whether cases around the country should be transferred to one court for pretrial proceedings. And what that means is, as a practical matter, though, is that that panel doesn't really have any constraints on where a case gets transferred to. They are not constrained by issues of personal jurisdiction. They're not constrained by uh, venue. it does not have to be where any of the cases are currently pending. There are really no constraints on where the panel can transfer the case. Um, so except that the, the receiving court, there has to be approval by the, um, the district court, the chief of that district court. And so, for example, if there is a case pending in the Second Circuit, and there's a case pending in the Seventh Circuit, and there's a case pending in the Ninth and the Fifth, the JPML can consolidate all of those cases in the Second, for example, or even the First, where no case is currently pending, uh, without concern for whether the First or Second Circuit has personal jurisdiction over the defendants of those various cases or whether venue would be proper. And the idea is that it's only being consolidated for coordinated or consolidated pretrial proceedings, but that the case after those pretrial proceedings are um, completed will then get transferred back to the uh, court where the case originated. So it'll go back to the second, it'll go back to the seventh, go back to the ninth circuit. Um, but the the interesting issue is that the uh, multi-district litigation judge, also known as the MDL judge, the MDL judge can make um, disposit- can decide dispositive motions, so the case can be dismissed. And ninety seven percent of the cases are resolved 
before the MDL court, meaning they never actually get transferred back to the case from which they originated. I'm sorry, from the trial, the the district court from which it originated. So what's the concern there about the chief justice's appointment power? I mean, what are what are the potential problems that could arise from the chief justice's uh, uh, individual ability to appoint these members? And is there evidence of those problems actually arising? Yeah, so this is where this paper also becomes about federal choice of law. Um, the and and that it's in that respect why the chief justice's power is somewhat uh, could be somewhat problematic. So when the case gets transferred to the MDL court, the dominant view among the um, among the courts of appeals is that the transferee court can apply the transferee court's law, meaning if all these cases that I talked about earlier from the second, the seventh, the fifth, and the ninth circuit all get consolidated in the second circuit, the district court judge there could apply second circuit law to all of the claims. And the law, as as we discussed earlier, is not necessarily consistent across the board. And so by transferring cases to the second circuit and allowing the MDL judge to decide dispositive motions, especially when the standards may be different with respect to those dispositive motions, that could enable a a decision about an entire category of cases under one circuit's law, even though the other circuit's law may have come out differently. And so the concern is that by transferring cases to one court of appeals or another, the panel is in effect determining the outcome of the case, not just where the case is being decided. And so the chief justice comes in because the chief justice is the one in the first instance who appoints that panel. And standing alone, that may seem like the relationship between the chief and the decisions that are yielded in those cases is somewhat attenuated, but there, the data suggests that the panel actually transfers cases to their own district courts, their home court, more often than to other district courts, and they transfer it to themselves specifically because they can also do that. They're not prevented from presiding over the very cases that they're deciding the transfer motion on. They can they transfer it to one of the members of the panel themselves at a higher rate than if a judge was selected randomly. So the idea is that the chief justice in appointing the panel is in many ways at least shaping and influencing where a case will get transferred, and at the very least affecting the what you might call the the probability distribution of where cases might go and how those cases might be decided, and. Is there evidence of this particular problem? I am. I, I. I don't know. Is the answer. I am actually in the process of doing a um, an econometric analysis of the appointment decisions. Um, and so right now, what I can say is that. Um, so I've evaluated the panels, the the various panels through time. So every time there was a change in a member, that's considered a new panel. And as we go from Berger to Rehnquist to Roberts as the chief justice, 
what we see is that the panel becomes more neutral, whereas it started out more conservative. And I should just note that the, the way um, I determined whether the how the panel was whether conservative versus um, not versus more liberal was by using these scores called the nominant scores of the senators who um, would have supported the um, appointment of that judge in the first place, and then come up with a number for the entire panel based on those numbers. And so we have this trend of the panel becoming more neutral. What I haven't done yet is been able to compare those numbers to a panel that would have been randomly um, selected. Um, And that's important because we want to compare the panel that the actual panel to a baseline of the of the judiciary, because it is possible that the judiciary itself became more liberal during that time period, especially because if if you think about it, we have the election of um, Bill Clinton during that time period, and he made quite a few liberal appointments during that time period as well. As for whether the panel has been trying to particularly match cases, I think that will be even harder to assess um, quantitatively. But I think that it's important to recognize this uh, possibility and um, be concerned about the potential abuse of power that's just potentially sitting latent in the institutional design choices we've made about giving the chief justice this power. Well, so Jennifer, I mean, reading both of these papers, I couldn't help but reflect on my experience as a civil procedure student and a civil procedure professor, you know, how we often will talk about or kind of reflect on the Supreme Court talking about how, you know, it wants to maintain or encourage consistency of the law and uh, discourage forum shopping and so on and so forth. But it seems like you're pointing to a lot of areas where the sort of institutional concern for these problems seems a, a, a little attenuated, especially from the perspective of the Supreme Court. I mean, I, I wonder how seriously you think the court really takes those problems at this point in time. Wow. Um <laughs> how seriously yeah how seriously the supreme court takes those problems you know i it's it's unclear but what i can say is that it it can be advantageous to a jurist to not resolve these issues because to the extent they persist it enables jurists to have debates about procedural law right rather than having a first order debate about the substantive law that's really being affected by the procedure. And so it's seemingly neutral when in fact what is really going on is these differences, different opinions about the underlying substantive law. So while it would be nice to get a resolution of these issues, and it might be nice for us to Uh, shine a spotlight on where procedure actually is affecting substance so that way we can have an argument and a discussion about the substance. It may also be in the same way that the court sometimes does not want to grant cert on particular issues because they don't want to decide those cases. They similarly may not want, they may have an interest in not resolving uh, the uh, or noting that this is really a substantive law issue versus just simply a procedural issue 
um, because of the fact that it will cause them to have, they would have to have this first order debate about the underlying substantive law that they are perhaps trying to avoid having. Yeah, I think that might be right. Well, Jennifer, thanks so much for coming on the show. These are really cool and interesting papers about a subject that honestly I didn't know anything about before reading them. And it was a real pleasure talking to you about both. Um, I, I hope readers will, will check them out. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me on the show. you got